Hello, and welcome to Presenting, a podcast where we chat about various topics related to role-playing games, typically Paizo products such as Pathfinder and Starfinder, but also others. I'm John Godick, and with me today is Andrew Mullen. Welcome to the podcast. Howdy. Thanks to be back. Yeah, it's good to see you again. Uh, Andrew Mullen has been freelancing for Paizo and other publishers since 2017. He brings a keen interest in language and the interplay of geography and culture to his work, as seen in his numerous works for Paizo, Encounter Table Publishing, Lost Spheres Publishing, Right Publishing, and Rusted Iron Games. Lately, his attention is focused on the Luminant Age, a third-party weird fantasy swashbuckling campaign setting for Pathfinder 2nd Edition that he's developing alongside veteran Paizo freelancers Mikhail Rikun and Isabel Thorne. So, um, Andrew, I, I, we went through this before, but I'd like to ask you again. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and your journey to becoming an RPG writer? Sure. Um, so I didn't play role-playing games until I was in my mid-20s. Um, I totally, I was, you know, I read Star Wars novels and played magic and stuff as a kid, but I totally missed the D&D thing because mm. a kid in my Boy Scouts troop described it to me as like, it's a game where you can do whatever you want. And at my age, I was like, that sounds horrible. Like you need rules to <laughs> have a, you know, yeah. a fun time. And so I just totally wrote it off for the next, I don't know, two decades or something. Um, so mid twenties, I was working at a bookstore and some friends there, you know, talked about it. I was like, oh, I should try that. And ended up joining their game. And then, gosh, four years later, I started trying to figure out how to write. Um, so wow. I got I got hooked pretty hard pretty quick. Um, but yeah, I, you know, I was playing home games and stuff. And then since we did play Pathfinder um, and I listened to No Direction, I knew about Wayfinder. So I, mm-hmm. I sent in uh, a monster for that. And then off the back of that monster, um, I think I went to Gen Con the next year. And so I had that writing sample ready to go when I talked to Paizo folks about writing. And yeah, it just sort of progressed naturally from there. Well, and, I, mean, I guess, you know, there's a certain amount of luck in being able, in being able to go to a con, talk to folks, have a thing, and then have them be like, oh, yes, I remember you. What else you got? You know, how's this alignment sound? Yeah. And that was in 2017 that you went? Yeah, I think so. It was a, it was the 50th Gen Con. I think that was okay. 2017. Right, right, right. Yeah, I, I, I didn't go to that one. I went to the the next one. But uh, it's amazing. So many people I've talked to have have mentioned how they met people at conventions and were able to connect and do things. And with the pandemic, that mode has changed. It changed for like two years yeah. because a lot of people weren't actively going to conventions, and so we're just now coming back to that again, which is where, where people can go to conventions and connect and and do yeah. things again. So, so it's, that's good to see. It's been encouraging to see that despite the face-to-face opportunities falling way off, I've, I've seen actually a lot more new faces in sort of the Pyro, Paizo freelancing sphere. Right. Um, you know, I assume mm-hmm. Twitter, Twitter's become a big networking, or has been for a while, a big networking place for role-playing game stuff. And I think, um, you know, the Paizo devs are actively trying to get new voices and stuff. So it's, it's cool mm-hmm. that, despite supply chains and everything else falling apart and grinding to a halt, the, the sort of, you know, opportunities for, for Pathfinder freelancers have not dropped off quite so much. You know, I think that's a really good point. Uh, if somebody's interested in seeing open calls, especially, I think following Paizo developers is something that you ought to be doing because they've had a couple of them over time 
and they get a lot of responses really quick yeah. and then the, the list fills up. So, um, you know, so being, being uh, on top of that, I think is important as well. Yeah. I now, know Luis Lowe's and Eleanor Fair yeah. and are, are pretty active on that. They're the Lost Omens line developers. Yep. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, since we last chatted, uh, I think it's over two years ago now, uh, you've had another two dozen publications. So how have you managed to be so productive in such a short period of time? It's funny to hear that exact number because I feel like the last two years I have not done like anything. Um, I, you know, I think part of that is probably just the, it's like a nine month delay, delay between getting an assignment right. and then it actually right. coming out. So I, I think it was some of the build up from that. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, yeah, I, I am honestly very surprised that it is that many. Um, between <laughs> between having a kid and pandemic and stuff, I didn't feel like I wrote that wrote that much, but I guess I did. Um, you know, a lot of that is is probably Paizo driven. Just you know, especially as as I become a full time parent, I've been trying to scale back what I take on. So you know, I'm more likely to get some a 600 word monster here. You know, and that's all I do for one book, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's probably driven that number a fair amount. But yeah, it's it's honestly been a, been a struggle, sort of balancing the writing stuff with the parenting stuff. Um, right. So my daughter is what two, almost two and a half, and a little bit. Um, and so there was a period where, right after she was born, you know, nobody was getting any sleep. The schedule was mess. <laughs> like I wasn't doing yeah. any writing. Yeah. Then, like, I don't know, maybe from like six months to a year and a half ish, like her naps were long enough and regular enough that I could count mm-hmm. on having some writing time. Um, or, you know, as she got older, she could sort of be like on a blanket on the ground next to me <laughs> with, yeah. you know, a toy or something and I could get some yeah. done there. And I made the mistake of thinking like, oh, it'll only get better from here. Like, like clearly this, this milestone of her independence and stuff is like good to go. Nothing will change. And so another particular reason I was surprised to hear that number is that, off the back of my overestimation of my, my time and ability to get work out. Um, I had a pretty rough end of the year last year um, between like the, the freelancer strike, um, I guess what strike concerted action, um, you know, trying to support Paizo devs and then just like, you know, my own stuff. And then the kid, I I had a lot of incomplete assignments, um, to the point where I'm actually taking a break from doing Paizo things and have been for, I don't know, nine months, something like that. Um, as I try to figure out, okay, now now this child is like walking around and talking and needing more help and, you know, I, I don't have as much time. And so just trying to, to figure out a, a healthy, non-stressful approach to my writing life and sort of my domestic life. Mm-hmm. And and you have a job too on top of that, right? Uh, I did for a bit. I think probably last oh, time we talked, right. I was working. I was helping yeah. fulfill orders um, for Magpie Games, so their warehouse yeah. here in, in Albuquerque. That yeah. I stopped. I probably worked there for nine months. And yeah, you okay. know, again, there, there came a point where I was like, okay, I can't, yeah. I can't count on my daughter to nap in the dark conference room in the Magpie right. office right, while right. I tape okay. boxes. So right, yeah. right, right. And it was just part time, so thankfully it wasn't yeah. a huge disruption to them. But mm-hmm. now you are working on something, this Luminan Age project, which I'm actually pretty pretty excited about. Um, 
you know, the weird part, I, 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 whatever, but the swashbuckling, I like that part. Can you talk a little bit about that project and when we might expect to see it? Uh, so we've, well, yeah, okay. I guess unexpected to see it. So we have one um, little zine already complete um, up on our, our itch page. That's luminant-age.itch.io. Um, we're in the middle of fulfilling our second one now. So I guess a big picture, eventually we, we want to put out, you know, like a 300 plus page campaign setting book. Um, mm -hmm. We we have freelanced long enough to know generally how the writing side works, how much effort is involved, but the, the publishing aspect is new for all of us, that amount right. of nitty gritty. So leading up to, you know, big fancy hardcover, we're like, maybe we should dip a toe in the water <laughs> instead of mm -hmm. shoving in whole hog. Mm -hmm. So our mm -hmm. first zine, Fauna of the Luminant Age, is a collection of like monsters, um, you know, raise some money to to pay for layout and art and that kind of stuff. Um, the second one, the one we're working on now, is Armaments of the Luminant Age. And that is equipment and a bit about sort of like the material culture of the, the focus for our setting. You know, what's, mm -hmm. what's food like day to day, some little things like that. Um, again, to drive money for illustrations and layout to get more people aware of the project. Um, right. The next zine uh should launch i think we're looking at like january february and that'll be sort of in pcs mm -hmm. and you know, as we build up these little building blocks of chunks you know chunks of stuff that gets us writing those things to then put in the big book but it also helps us build our network of you know professional connections we've got liz quartz doing layout for this book and wow. really we'll be able nice. to stick with her for the yeah. big book since she you know has done layout for third parties and stuff for a long time is very familiar with sort of the Pathfinder shtick, right? Um, but yeah, it is, we're actively chipping away at it. Um, we're making pretty good progress, but we're trying to be realistic, you know, tempering our enthusiasm with the reality of things like what is printing going to look like when we right. launch the big book Kickstarter? You know, I think that ground a lot of projects to a halt earlier in the pandemic and that sort of thing. Well, so I, 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 I'll say something about that, then come back to an, another question, though. Um, so Ron Lundeen actually partnered with uh, Owen Casey Stevens when he did his oh, yeah, Scaldwood right. Blight launch. And he said Owen did a fantastic job of, of helping a lot of that stuff that Ron wasn't familiar with. So I would maybe suggest contacting him and his company if uh, you want to have a partnership, but you don't have to. And I'm not paid for this endorsement, by the way. Yeah. Um, and the other thing I'll ask, though, is what is the Luminant Age? Yeah, You're talking about all this stuff, so what is that? <laughs> okay, so, um, gosh. It is a, we were just talking the other day about, like, what are the, what are the thematic cornerstones of the setting? So, yeah, number one is weird. We, we want to sort of draw inspiration from, from, I don't know if you played any of the Elder Scrolls games, but Morrowind. Mm -hmm. Yep, where, you yep. know, it's on the Volcano Island. There's mm -hmm. the, the architecture is wild. Instead of horses, they're riding around on giant bugs, you know, that sort of mm -hmm. thing. Um, Nausicaa, the Studio Ghibli film. Okay. Um, China Mievel is another, at least for me, big inspiration. He's a, a British author uh, who's done 
just some really cool books that are sort of outside the normal fantasy stuff. So mm-hmm. we want to do something that is not kind of normal Euro fantasy or sort of like glaring kitchen sink. Um, right, right. So for our project, that means a world that is kind of built on the ruins of another, you know, post sort of post-apocalyptic thing is not super uncommon, but we've, instead of focusing right after the collapse of society, this is 1300 years later um, Mm -hmm. where people have mostly built back. You're in sort of a, an Italian Renaissance ish time frame. Mm -hmm. Um, And now people are starting to figure out the world in earnest. Um, Uh, sorry, I've, I've had, I've been involved in this thing for so long that it's hard to like keep, keep straight what's in my head, but sure. Um, sure. Well, how about if I ask some other questions kind of related to that? Yeah. Okay. So you've kind of talked about, you know, some of the weird stuff in there is the, the basis for magic going to be different than what we see for Pathfinder, uh, you know, a whole different system. Um, right. I presume maybe some new classes might be in there obviously new settings. So what are some of those major cornerstone changes that you'll be incorporating? I just wrote up the the magic section outline the other day. So yeah, let me, let me rewind and kind of give the setting overview. So basically there was a big accomplished globe spanning, you know, sort of medium hard sci-fi technology civilization. Hmm. They did something wrong. Um, the, the people in setting now, most of them believe that they killed God and basically plunged the entire world into darkness. You know, 99% of the, the population dies off. Um, currently, there are, you know, civilizations rebuilt on the ruins of these old, grand, you know, towering structures and that sort of thing. And magic exists now. Um since we are in that Renaissance sort of period, um, travel is more expansive. Correspondence is more possible now. So in this sort of precise moment in the history, um, yeah, science is moving. So you have all these people all over the world who are suddenly able to correspond and scholars are realizing, oh, there are these things in common with all these different magic users in our world, you know, cultural approaches and some of the specifics of spellcasting, like components of things are different, but we are noticing these trends between these different kinds of casters. So magic-wise, it is um, the Pathfinder 2E magic system. But because we have that sort of mechanical constraint, you know, we're not we're not gonna use 100 pages or whatever to write all new right. spells and all new magic mm-hmm. system, all that stuff. But the fact that it has the four traditions, you know, arcane, divine, occult primal mm-hmm. that makes some really cool world building fuel for right. what right. that means. Um, so I'm trying to, trying to figure out how much to, to say or not say. No, so no, in, that's, in, that's fine. In, yeah. in addition to the sort of yeah. the weird fantasy thing. Um, so like our, our primary city, our Riker is built on a bunch of, you know, purpose unclear uh, derricks in the middle of an ocean surrounding like this big sort of broken off tower that's a mile plus high. Okay. Um, you know, so they're built 
the city is built on these ruins. You know, everyone you know, fishes every day. You know, it's not cobblestones and, you know, big right. eaves, sort of proto-German, whatever, fantasy. Um, it's, temp- you know, it's tropical. Um, in addition to all that weirdness. So in addition to all the sort of the cultural and, and sort of like architectural differences, we wanted to take a different approach to faith and magic. Because, um, okay. you know, Pathfinder and D&Ds has a very established but very specific take on religion and magic. Um, right. You know, the, the whole you can fall as a paladin or a cleric thing. You know, in okay. real life, nobody, nobody has an inviolate link with the divine where they're getting vibes back and forth of how close they are to, you know, being expelled from school, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, so instead of that sort of more certain knowledge of of divinity and sort of the the more yeah esoteric aspects of the setting that's all much more unclear so okay you know bolting that on to pathfinder's magic is, is a little trickier so instead mm-hmm. of the uh the anathema and the the other one the stuff you have to do as a paladin right cleric, right 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 there are guidelines formatted in a similar way just for, from a gameplay perspective you know we'll, we'll give you right. so for instance the angelite church um they believe that the mirror people the previous civilization killed god ruined the planet and then one of god's angels was like oh man this sucks for you guys here i'll put i'll take out some of my eyes and put them in the sky to light the world now that god has dead and his final eye their final eye has closed and the sun has gone out Right. So right. that religion sees that they were saved by this merciful angel. Um, they don't have, you know, clerics and, and champions in the sense that they have a pact with this angel directly. You know, they don't, they don't know if the angel exists definitively. Mm-hmm. Spells like commune and stuff don't, don't give you that same certainty. Um, so instead of that more faith, or more more direct link to divinity, you basically get empowered by the religion as an organization. So it would be okay. like if it would be like if your you know your local archbishop of your Catholic diocese was like, oh, you've been doing good stuff. You know, you're you're part of the clergy now. We're gonna go do the ritual to give you magic. Mm-hmm. Um, so okay. you know, clerics and such can get empowered by their faith organizations. You know, we've got a couple different religions. And then if you make everyone mad enough, they can take that away too. You can get excommunicated. Okay. Which does leave an interesting little sort of world building setting mystery gap there because you, yeah. you can have people who are out of favor with the faith and are no longer associated with the church bureaucracy and hierarchy, but they can still cast spells because they haven't, you know, been, been axed off of that sort of official connection yet. Right. So what, is, right. what does that mean for divinity and magic for the people in the world if, you know, somebody, a, a giant heretic can still access that power? Right. That's a weird little, you know, point of uncertainty. And that's, wow. I guess, yeah. that adds in another element for our, yeah. our sort of overall campaign setting themes. We want it to be weird, but we also want to, the sort of setting is mystery or puzzle to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. we have we have what is basically a fantasy setting through the lens of like Arthur C. Clarke or mm-hmm. Carl Sagan. I forget. You know, any sufficiently 
advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Right, right. So previous civilization was pretty high tech, but 1300 years later, you know, rebuilt civilization. So much of that stuff is incomprehensible. The scientific principles that, that drove it, that kind of thing, mm-hmm. there's not the awareness to figure that out. So we want that general sense of mystery sort of in the past of the world in how people interface it with it and how people conceive of the world they live in. So right. the, you know, the one lens is they killed God, God's angel put the lights in the sky. Another, another one is there was some big war in heaven and there were, you know, a jillion gods, polytheistic thing. Um, most of them killed each other and only a couple are left. Those are the, the lights in the sky. And now, you know, we have to deal with the sort of metaphysical uh, environmental disaster that is all of these, mm. all of these dead gods in the heavens. So, we we want to have a sense of a sort of like wonder, uncertainty, mystery about a lot of the things in the setting. And divine magic is a is a cool way to do that because we can take the the certainties of you know the fairly well defined and regimented Pathfinder right. magic system, and then figure out how to put it in our world in a way that still leaves a lot of questions unanswered. Yeah, it looks like a lot of tweaks to Divine Magic in particular, right? Yeah. Uh, so I, that brings up a question, though. Then you you don't have the same expansive set of deities, I presume. You have something new or unknown out there, unnamed, perhaps, mm-hmm. something like that. Um, the other question I have, kind of you alluded to this a little bit, if it's based on, a, basically, you're, you're built upon the remnants of an old advanced civilization, does technology then pop up in the form of artifacts and things like that? Yes. Um, so the the zine that's going to come out soon, Armaments of the Limited Age, has, um, well, one, like really artifact level in the in the game mechanic sense things. Like one of the items in there is um, is armor, a suit of, you know, Actually, what if I can pull up the illustration? Yeah. Anyways, really, really fancy armor. Like it can fly and stuff. And so that's oh, bonkers wow. to you know yeah. the people in the world. Um, things like that are around. Something that functions is relatively rare. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. To the point that one of the one of the nations became sort of a regional power off the back of um, their sort of. Uh, I think it's called noocracy, but like ruled by by the educated. Mm-hmm. They have such a scholarly scholarly pre- presence in their culture that they were able to make rituals to sort of fill in the gaps of uh, old machines. So you know this uh, whatever canning machine, it doesn't work, but through this ritual we can make it work for like an hour or whatever. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so the fact that they are able to to power really old stuff. Um, is huge and you know led to their their rise as regional power um for other people you know you might find the equivalent of like a Roomba you know that that's relatively uncomplicated you know that yeah one of those might have a couple of bugs but it's still functioning um let's see yeah okay so two things um one this is this is a, a fantasy setting or at least as I conceive of it um, it obviously has some sci-fi elements sort of in there in the foundation, but what's really cool to me is is that interpretation of wonders technology as 
as magic. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's a lot of fun to to describe that stuff in that way and apply that to an entire setting, not just, you know, if, if someone from Galarian popped up in 1920s Earth or whatever, what would they think right. about, right. you know, a, a car? But but the world writ large looks at these things in that, that way, of same way of uncertainty. Um, that is aided by the fact that the previous civilization, the mirror people, were like, extremely proud and had to them mastery over the world such that they could just do whatever they wanted. So instead of things like we need to build a high rise hotel, what's the most, what's the most efficient and cheapest way to do this while still hitting our aesthetic goals. Like aesthetics was the big thing for them. We want to show how grand and amazing Mm -hmm. we are by making this structure look like a blooming flower or whatever. So for their things like a Roomba or whatever, you know, it's not a little disc scooting around. It might look like, you know, an almost perfectly biomimetic like spider running around with little hands that picks up trash. Or... So mm-hmm. all of all of the things from the previous civilization don't look like, you know, it's not like the expanse, right? Where it, right. it's okay. Earth a bit, a bit advanced. It's It's got a whole mm-hmm. sort of alien feel to it. Mm-hmm. Um, on the technology front, you know, we are in that Renaissance period. One of the big things um, that people have rediscovered is how to <laughs> um, how to mine the fuel that killed God. Uh, so, in in the Angelite view, mere people basically bled God dry, and once they had died, that is when their their eye, the sun shut, and everything went haywire. Uh, Ikor is that that fuel, what they were bleeding from God, and it's sort of part part gunpowder, part like cold fusion-ish. It's, mm. it's a, a wondrous substance that can do really cool things. It also uh, is like incredibly hallucinogenic and toxic and a bunch of other stuff. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. off the back of that, um, they're then able to do things like power airships, um, start making firearms. So we have sort of a, you know, yeah, Renaissance-ish level of technology. Printing presses are a thing, that sort of, mm-hmm. that sort of deal. Mm-hmm. So on the one hand, you have this ancient technology that looks, looks wild. And then you have this newer stuff that is you know, built from fragments of old machines mixed with modern right. metallurgy and right. this Iker and that sort of thing. I wish I had illustrations ready to go because we got some really cool stuff yeah. from uh, Sinlair, our artist, for the, the current zine with all the equipment. Mm-hmm. Well, that sounds like a fantastic setting i i really really like the the premise there and that's something you know i I like post-apocalyptic kind of settings and in particular this one where you're building on things using materials that were previously made that you can't construct now but you turn them into new things right you know um one example i remember in a book i was reading where people wanted to build arrowheads and so they used coins and filed them down, right? Oh, they had yeah. them all over the place. So much easier to find than than rocks or, you know, cut metal to other things. So, no, yeah. that's, I, I think that's awesome. Um, now, as you're kind of growing this, the setting campaign, are you going to be hiring other freelancers? Is that something that folks should be look, uh, looking out for an uh, open call from from you all? Um, we probably won't do an open call. We have We have hired some freelancers just because we want to get you know, me, Isabel, and Mikhail, like, it's just the three of us who've been working on this yeah. for so long. And we want to have more than three people's perspectives on the thing. Um, right, right, right. So we have fired a few other folks to help flesh out other sections of the world so that we can, 
ideally get get those other parts of the world, like big big parts of the world, like that nation I was talking about, um, yeah. you know, that can revive old machines. We had a freelancer do sort of their their whole thing, sort of the gazetteer. Um, and we want to get that done early enough that we can then incorporate information from those into right. into the world itself, you know? So it's not mm-hmm. just our three perspectives on this world. It, it's more folks. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we'll, we'll see how the big book does if the big book goes really well and we want to keep, I mean, I think there's, there's fuel for a million publications here, but if we want to keep going, you know, we might hire some folks, but um, as is we're, yeah, we're, we're trying to, to keep our ambitions you know, yeah. reasonable given, given we're pretty new to the game. Yeah, no, it, it sounds, sounds exciting. Mm-hmm. So uh, what advice do you have for people interested in becoming freelance writers and game designers like uh, you all are? Uh, well, <laughs> given my life currently, um, figure out how much time and energy you have and whether or not you might have <laughs> say a toddler there yeah. to, <laughs> to mess with your, your goals. Um, Honestly, though, I, I think that is a very important component. I think burnout is a pretty common, mm-hmm. you know, issue in in the freelancing or just the game sphere in general. So I think if you want to get into it, um, I, I touched on this before, but you know, get on Twitter, follow some some devs, follow third party folks, you know, look at indie folks too. There's a huge boom in, in indie games mm-hmm. now, which is really really cool and really inspiring. Um, so make sure you're you know. You're networking online. You know what's coming down the pipe. But once you've got your writing samples ready, once you're reaching out to folks, you know if you land those first gigs, really try to keep an eye on, you know, how much time you're using, how much energy you're using. What is a a sustainable, healthy, but still sort of fulfilling or profitable way for you to do this work. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I've lost count of the number of friends I've I have who have had to take a year long break or more because they're like, you know, I just I just used up all my fuel and I can't do it anymore. I mean, that's kind of where I am right now. Um, right. So yeah, the mental health and sort of burnout thing is is really really important. I would try to keep that in mind mm-hmm. once you get started. Excellent, excellent. So, how can folks find you and learn more about your projects? Um, so I'm on Twitter at af mullen. Um, Luminant Age Twitter is Luminant A also on Twitter um, especially keep an eye on on that because yeah in a couple months we'll probably start running up for zine number three um, we'll be you know, talking about that there um, Mikhail and Isabella are there too I think they're linked through that that Luminant Age Twitter account um, and then I show up on the Paizo boards every now and then that sort of thing excellent well Andrew thanks so much for joining us on the podcast today Thank you.